Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton of Hamilton Law Mediation, and this is the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Today, I'm with Dr. Diane Eichner, who is a principal at a small end-of-life feline practice on the Jersey Shore. She's also an assistant professor, an adjunct assistant professor at Penn Vet. She is a teacher of yoga. So at the end of the day, she does everything to make us feel better. So I thought it would be a great um, addition to the Why Do Pets Matter podcast to have Dr. Eigner here. I'm going to call her Diane because I know her really <laughs> well. Uh, but thank you so much, Diane, for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I know you have wear so many hats and most of them probably are interwoven um, because as you help people at the end of life with their felines um, and you do yoga, that probably that sense of mindfulness and centeredness helps you and probably washes over the people whose pets you're helping um, transition, plus helping vet students in various ways at um, Penn Vet is incredibly rewarding. Um, I would think. And, and so as we start every um, podcast, why do pets matter to you, Diane? You know, I'd have to say that for as long as I remember, um, they, they speak to me and um, a piece of my heart um, just belongs to mostly the cats and dogs that have crossed my path. Um, there's a wonder about um, just the way they behave. Um, and there's this incredible pleasure I get from their company. Um, and again, from just observing um, them, they, like it, it's, it's amazing how I, this, this calmness washes over me when I watch cats grooming. There's just something about that that I just love. So it's intangible, um, but it really is that um, they have a piece of my heart. Well, that cat grooming, as as Diane knows, I have a um, a grandkitty named Jane, and I've never really had cats. But I have to tell you, I feel the same thing when she's sitting there, and she's it's sort of illustrative of self care, right? Here we are, none of us are in self care. Uh, we're in self isolation because this podcast is being recorded during our shelter in place of COVID nineteen, um, so we are self-contained, but are we self-caring? And I think with your um, yoga background, that would lead to, to something that would be so important in your practice when you're helping people transition their wonderful, you know, cats. Well, you know, one of the things that's a foundation, I think, of yoga philosophy is um, the lack of, of judging yourself. 
And um, at a time when animals are unfortunately reaching their last days of life, um, often they, their caregivers are often second guessing themselves, of course, not only about whether the time is right, but also whether they provided optimum care. And, um, and so I think it is helpful for me. It's nice of you to, to actually point that out that um, I deeply committed to that lack of, of, of judging. Um, and so I try really hard to communicate that with my owners and to help them be at peace with the decisions they make. I've had so many dogs in my life, no cats, but I've had so many dogs in my life. And uh, I can honestly tell you only one took matters into her own hands um, and left me without me being with her. Uh, and I think that was harder for me um, than when I got that look. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that from your clients. You get that look and um, you do second guess yourself. Was it that look or was it that look? Was it this look or you? And um, I know that... I have had several veterinarians who have been wonderful, some not so wonderful, but one veterinarian stands out in my mind so completely because I made a decision that was a little controversial because my dog had um, adenocarcinoma of her bone. I think that's the right term or osteosarcoma, sorry, of her rear leg and she broke her rear leg. And uh, I, she was beautiful Irish setter, loved to run. And everybody told me, no, you can cut her leg off and she'll be fine and you'll get another year and blah, blah, blah. And um, I sat there and I said, you're absolutely right. I will get another year. But is it about me or is it about them? You know, probably the most significant um, concept I um, began to understand um, the way I think I always wish I did during all the years that I owned my private practice, um, when I owned a private practice in Philadelphia, was that the most important thing for us to focus on when our animals are reaching their last days or hours is if we can identify what's important to that particular pet. So it doesn't have to be obviously a cat or dog, it can be another species. But what you just said is really profound because um, it's really about what 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 is it that's so special to that pet? And if running and being ambulatory for that dog was really the essence of that dog, then denying that dog that wouldn't have been fair to that dog, regardless of whether you could have, you know, tried some ways to keep that life going. So I'm really glad that you recognize that. And it was interesting because the surgeon um, said to me, you're absolutely right. He said, the days you brought in will not be the days you bring home. He said, and if that's important to you, that Daisy be Daisy, he said, then the decision you're making is absolutely right. He said, because she will be different. And because I'm totally irreverent um, and you've seen some of my uh, irreverentness when we have had fun conversations, um, I always said to people who questioned why I did it, I said, I couldn't really figure out how to tell her by the way, when she woke up, now you have three legs and um, get over it. <laughs> I I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So, you know, and that's a, a, a decision I had a friend who did because Irish setters, unfortunately, um, have a lot of osteosarcoma. So we've had many people who've made decisions, pro and con, like me, not like me. Um, and one dog lived about four years, which was unheard of. Uh, and that was great. And that dog survived and had a happy life and lived happily, you know, and, and then of course you can sort of, 
second guess yourself, as you said, you know, you're second guessing yourself. But I said, you know, this was the right decision for Daisy. And uh, I know that when we've spoken, the ability to um, hold a safe space for the person grappling with this decision is so key. And that's why you really have a practice that's focused in helping people not, I mean, I'm sure there have been people who um, decided not to go ahead and to wait. Um, and I'm sure you supported them for that decision as well. Yes, yes. And that's, that's one of the things I try really hard to do. Yeah. Because it is, it is a, a life-changing, like uh, at the beginning you said, you know, all the pets have a piece of my heart and I have something hanging by the front door. Um, every, every pet that um, comes into my life uh, brings a piece of their heart to me. Um, and every time they leave, they take a piece of my heart. So that's what was triggered when you said that. But at the end it says, and if I'm lucky, um, by the end of my life, I will have a complete, it says dog heart, of course, I will have a complete dog heart uh, because that's the kind of heart that, you know, we should all strive for or cat heart because, you know, they just um, love us so unconditionally. Yes. Um, well, that maybe that's the other thing I probably should have um, mentioned when you asked me about what is it that's you know so special about having um, pets in our lives, and it is that unconditional love that they give that is is just so um, so heartwarming and um, just so fulfilling. I guess. Yeah. And for me, that brings back yoga because when we're doing yoga, we were talking before we got on the radio program about my doing yoga. I'm very bad at it and all my joints don't work, but I always found that piece of, um, of the teacher who was unconditional um, and the people in the room who are unconditional. If I did the exercise or didn't do the exercise, yeah, I think the best part is when you start and you just become present. And then when you end, <laughs> when you become you come back to the world, but in a, in a different way, every single time in a different way. Well, you know, the thing, the thing that you just mentioned that I'm gonna um, focus on is what you mentioned about when you're present in your practice. Um, and I'm, I'm taking this conversation a little bit in a different direction, but I can't help but wanna share the message of how wonderful yoga is or another activity like that where there is some a mindfulness associated with it is that um, generally most of us have this edge of us that's a bit, bit competitive. And um, when we're practicing, um, it doesn't have to be something that's in a physical activity because certainly we can be competitive in our professional lives too. But um, one of the things that is so um, amazing about yoga is just that it really is about what you can do with your body and it doesn't matter what the person next to you is doing and I think you um, find after you've been practicing for a while that you almost become oblivious to everybody else in the room um, and you realize that you're not comparing yourself anymore to anyone else and you're just focused on the practice and it's very frequent as um, teachers, when we finish our classes, we often share with our students that we hope that the benefits of the practice are something they carry with them off the mat. Um, and so bringing this back to everyday life and you know, back to the judgment associated with owners when they make the decisions um, as they're 
um, pets are declining or in our professional lives, how we often judge ourselves and um, don't always focus enough on what what's serving us well. Um, I think I do bring that um, philosophy into almost every aspect of my life. So into my veterinary practice with my clients and also with my students, of course, you know, who are um, struggling with a number of stresses at, in school. Um, and then again, in the yoga studio. So um, it is, it's very cool that, that, that I do take that off the mat. Yeah, you do. You uh, Because I know I've been with you many times and it's always a calming experience to sit down and talk to Diane, anyone who is in the Jersey Shore area who has a feline and it may be an older feline should look um, Dr. Diane Eichner up but uh, and we'll put all the contact information at the end of this podcast. But I just always feel as if it is so important um, to have that ability to be present for the person who is going through such um, a transition, because there is nothing, except maybe the loss of a child, I'm sure, um, that's as heart-wrenching as, as the loss of a pet that you've had share so many momentous occasions in your life, been there for you always, because as you said, unconditional love, um, and then having to um, let them go. So you chose this practice, and it sort of goes hand in hand with everything you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it feels really good. Yeah. So now at PenVet, what are you helping the new veterinarians learn um, that will help them possibly enter into the practice and focus on the practice in a way that um, is more mindful, if you if you can? Because it, it might be business-oriented, it might not. But is there a way that um, you can help the veterinarians uh, cut the learning curve, so to speak, as, as, uh, as we say, so that they can be more mindful because as you and I have spoken, veterinary medicine is a very stressful practice. Um, and there are studies on the stress and the well-being that's needed. And a friend of mine in um, Australia, Dr. Nadine Hamilton, who's been on a for, uh, prior podcast, writ, wrote a book on how to cope with stress and burnout in veterinary medicine. And it's sort of like hit the veterinary bestseller list. But you're in the trenches with the students. Um, how do you help them? Because what you do is so transformational when you let help someone let their pet go um, and you do yoga and bring people to a more awareness. How do you bring that into the classroom? Well, so, you know, I started my feline practice when I was 28 years old, um, probably marginally equipped both in terms of my veterinary abilities and then, of course, in terms of my management abilities, because at that time, veterinary students got no training in leadership or any any aspect of practice management. So you were really learning on the job. And of course, as you can imagine, I made many mistakes. I was very fortunate that I made minimal, and I can't remember, serious medical mistake I made. Um, and largely that was because I was... Um, someone that reached out for assistance anytime I felt I needed it. And, and I was very lucky that my practice was very close to the University of Pennsylvania Veterinary School. And, you know, anytime I couldn't read an x-ray before the days of digital x-ray, I would just jump in the car with an x-ray and run up to Penn's radiology department. So I got help on the veterinary side. I got, I got minimal help on the practice management side 
Um, and so, again, made many mistakes um, that led to sometimes um, excessive employee turnover. And, you know, my practice wasn't running real well. And then I personally, of course, didn't have good strategies to cope with many of the challenges that a practice owner faces. So let's speed that up. And, you know, about 30 years later, um, I had gone um, to business school to have more formal education in business management. And Penn asked me if I would take over a practice management course that was started by someone you know well, Dr. Jim Wilson. Um, and when I mm -hmm. looked at uh, the curriculum that he had, um, I decided to um, take many of the concepts that he had introduced, but to um, expand that to really cover a lot of the um, areas that I wish I had known more about. And so I had a very real way of putting together a curriculum. Um, and what I'm very lucky about is through my membership with a vet partners organization that you and I are members of, um, I'm able to remain very, very current I think um, the Vet Partners members are some of the most innovative and forward-thinking members of an association associated with veterinary care that I've ever been exposed to. And so it allows me to keep that curriculum really current to make sure that I'm at least attempting um, to give them information that will be very relevant to them um, when they graduate. And included in that course is, um, you know, Dr. Kimberly Pope, um, and she, you know, she comes in and she talks about um, finding fulfillment in the veterinary space and um, is actually one of our most popular, my most popular speakers. But one of the most satisfying things, and, and I know the practice ownership isn't for every veterinarian that graduates, but um, my class actually only meets in person for one week, the first week of March. And I'm actually now receiving the final papers that were due yesterday. Um, and one of the most satisfying things that I find after I teach the course is there are many students that end up letting me know that they didn't ever consider practice ownership. But now after taking my elective, they realize that it's possible. Um, and, and one of the things that, that's so simple that they were not aware of is something, something as basic as help that there are consultants out there that can help them and there are technologies out there that can help them. Um, so that is very, very um, rewarding for me um, that I get to do that for them because they are, um, obviously the amount of scientific knowledge they have to um, get is huge. And so business courses are not something that's part of the regular curriculum and it's a great opportunity for them um, to get that exposure to, to those concepts. That's such a wonderful um, explanation because, quite frankly, it is what usually happens. When I when I taught at a conference at Cornell, they wanted me to come back and help them rewrite their um, books, and it it seems that even when they so UPenn is of course um, ahead of the curve, uh, but we would expect that uh, Cornell's very good too because my vet's from Cornell, uh, but it really isn't as you pointed out. Um, as important to the curriculum as the medicine. However, without it, 
the medicine can suffer because of the stress that comes on to the veterinarian and he can't think because he's got to pay his bill or he's got to figure out how to fire. There was so much rich information. So Jim Wilson, who you mentioned, of course, is you know a mentor to me. I, I wish he was more available. Um, he's off into another business now and, and he's not as available to me, but he was uh, very supportive of my um, practice and what I was trying to bring to the veterinary um, field. Uh, he is an attorney. So you're a business major and a veterinarian. It's like you're all high overachievers. I'm just one thing, I'm just an attorney. Uh, and it, it really, he brought the law and how to run a practice with the law to practice. And now you're bringing, um, I don't wanna say the softer side, but it is the softer side in that you have to be aware of what you're bringing to your practice. Well, like one of the things we do is a disc a disc training because, um, and one of the things Karen Felstead um, teaches my students is um, we need to be able to deliver what the client, which it's, it's, it's maybe awkward to call them the customer, but it is a customer experience we're bringing to that owner. And we can be the best veterinarians in the world, but if we don't create that experience for them, then all of our talents that could go to saving that pet's life are, are not going to you know, lead us to where we want to go in terms of the outcomes for that patient. And in my practice, it's that experience that's the difference between understanding the vet did the best they could and wanting to sue the vet. And when I, you know, I, I, I sit there and, and most of my clients who are pet owners whose, whose pets have not survived something um, come to me with that first, and you'll understand this completely, that first statement is, I, I don't want this to happen to anybody else again. And that is the, the client experience because they didn't understand they didn't know what went on. Um, they, it, it was just not something um, that they took away a full understanding about. And um, in my practice, the only sort of hurdle that Jim Wilson and I were trying to work through and are still trying to work through is that um, the malpractice insurance groups don't yet allow the veterinarian to um, speak to the client in a in a protected setting before they're sued. That's right. Um, and that's the thing that, that you know, I've been championing and we've been talking about because veterinarians really do want to speak to their clients and learn from their clients and take responsibility for what they did. However, we attorneys, and I'll raise my hand, I don't do it, but many of my colleagues do, say don't talk to them until they sue you. And I have to tell you, once you're sued, first of all, your license gets reviewed and I have a license and you have a license. I don't know, I go into heart palpitations when someone calls from the courthouse. What did I do? What did I do wrong? You immediately go there. You immediately go to, oh shit, what did I do? It's sort of like when you get stopped for a traffic thing. Oh God, what did I do? And your heart starts to beat. Um, and I want to stop that for veterinarians because veterinarians can really have a conversation with a client um, in a mediated setting, say, because that's the safest way to do it because it's confidential. Um, but it gives them the opportunity, and I know you teach this in your class, and you probably do uh, role plays in your class. It teaches them to see how they were perceived. They didn't intend to be perceived that way at all. But you know, when you said you know, I, I kept having people come, and I didn't know how to keep employees. I didn't because I always tell my clients because you bring yourself with you every time you go somewhere, uh, every time you fire an employee. If you don't learn why it was that that 
relationship didn't work out. And this, you know, goes back to yoga, of course, because it's being present, right? Being present with who you are. If you don't understand why that relationship didn't work out, you can't stop it from happening in the future because you bring yourself with you. I mean, it's unfortunate. Um, and you love yourself because I love myself and I know how many imperfections I have. It's a, it's a, it's a tome this thick, but, uh, it, it really is so um, important when you talk about teaching and giving them the courage and the vulnerability, because I think those two words are interchangeable, the courage and vulnerability to say, yeah, I can, I can be an owner. I just need to make sure I surround myself with people um, who I understand and who understand me. And I have to understand how I understand them. If you if you get my drift, I have to understand and I have to ask questions and I have to be comfortable in my skin to say, you know, Diane, I, I don't understand why you're asking me to do that. I just think that's so ridiculous. And 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 then realize the language you're using isn't fostering collaboration, it's fostering um, education in the pushback. And so it, it really comes to a point where what you're doing in your class, which is different than what Jim did, which I think is absolutely transitional. So you live in that transition world, helping people with their pets go to, you know, um, over the Rainbow Bridge and be happy. But you're also helping your students transition from simply protecting themselves from crazy clients to um, being able to understand uh, I, I wrote a book, Nipped in the Bud, Not in the Butt, How to Use Mediation to Resolve Conflicts Over Animals. And in it, it says, stop, drop, and roll. Um, so stop talking and listen. Drop the need to be right. You are. And let what they say roll off your back, because especially in veterinary medicine, um, when people, and I, I teach this to people too, so it's not just for veterinarians. This is for pet owners as well. Um, when people are upset or afraid, um, they say things. And if you don't add fuel to the fire by saying, I hear you, um, Diane, but this is why I'm right. <laughs> if you use that three-letter word that really stinks, I hear you. But when I teach classes at conferences, at vet conferences and at um, pet owner conferences and uh, boarding, uh, boarding facility conferences, I always say, please just put a, hear my voice say, I hear you, Diane, period. Hear my voice yeah. say, period. Yeah. Enough. <laughs> That's all you need to say. You don't need to justify how you heard them. You don't, you just, and so when you brought that new concept to UPenn, it gave the students courage um, to say, I can do that. And it isn't just all about the, um, the uh, education on medicine, but it's the education on quite frankly, human relations. Yes. And then the other thing that I haven't shared is I was able to introduce the first um, university veterinary school end of life curriculum at Penn last year. So now students also are able to take an elective that prepares them for dealing with owners that are um, struggling or maybe not struggling, but are, um, you know, working with pets um, who are going to be crossing the Rainbow Bridge. And um, you may or may not know that frequently it's one of the first things a new graduate gets asked to do is, is to help an owner say goodbye to their pet. And they frequently- When we do the video, everyone will see my face, which just cringed because oh, I would think that would be the hardest thing to be a new vet who wants to save lives be asked to do. 
Right. And so, and so what's very, again, satisfying for me is I'm really helping them um, embrace the service they're providing for the owner, but um, allowing them to make that experience again, really about that experience so that it's the best it could possibly be both for the pet um, and for the caregivers. So um, it's, it's been very, I, lo I just love working with the students in, in both courses. So it's been um, a really nice way for me to transition out of full-time practice ownership and providing veterinary care. So it's been great. And you've brought all that wealth of experience, all the things, because I know I've been practicing um, law since I was 24 um, and all the mistakes I made, I bring with me. Um, and the biggest mistake I made was litigating all my life. Um, so I have fixed that. <laughs> I don't litigate anymore. I only help people try to find um, the way past conflict into um, a collaborative conversation. And maybe they won't be best friends next, but they will absolutely feel as if they were heard, which I think all of us want to have happen. And with your, you know, your practice, which helps people transition with you, and then... I did not realize, and I'm so glad you put it here on the podcast because I'm going to put the links to all of this. Um, it is so important to teach people how to help people transition a loved one. And there is no less love when you're transitioning your pet as if you're transitioning. I mean, I lost my mom and my dad and that transition was enormous. But I think because I was into meditation and I was into yoga and I was into being present, um, I really uh, allowed them to transition without me sobbing hysterically on the side of the bed, because hearing, I think, doesn't go till the last, at least that's what I've read. And I wanted to tell them, you know, I know you're going to be with me and, and um, sort of spooky, but I know my parents are with me during this COVID time. Because, you know, we've been out and about, but we've always taken precautions. But I said, you know, they're both up there. This isn't going to happen to us. It's just, it's just not going to happen to us. It's just not in the cards. And I, I said to my sister, I'm sort of glad my parents are in heaven now instead of, you know, or wherever they are in the, in the next beyond. Um, that they're there helping us instead of here having us worry about them. And so you're helping veterinary students be present um, and not worry whether or not they're doing something right, but taking the cues from the pet owners and helping them. Yeah, the pet owner and the pet, right? Because you want to, yep. you know, there's the right way to help an animal pass and there is the wrong way. And so I really want them um, to understand how to do it the best way possible. And this has only come about, I'd say, what, in the last 20 years that people have actually taken time, um, maybe 30. I keep thinking that I'm younger than I am. So that's why I always say 20, because I can't possibly be 62, but I am. Um, so it's, you know, it, maybe it's 30 or 40 years. I remember having a dog that I found on the road that had been hit by a car and the vet put it down and it was just a not a nice um, sight. Now, I didn't see it. My husband saw it. Um, so this is only in the last 40 years that that putting an animal to sleep has taken on such um, a conscious effort on the part of uh, veterinarians and the people who love the pet. I think it's maybe even more recent than that. When I oh, think, no, when I, no, when I think about um, how every visit I do, um, I make sure I include the opportunity for the caregivers to memorialize their pet in the way they want to. And, 
My follow-up communications always include a referral to a grief counseling service should they need that kind of support. Um, and again, the whole experience, when I'm in the owner's home, I allow them to customize that experience to, again, what's meaningful for the pet. Like, you know, one of my favorite um, times I helped a cat leave this earth was um, out on the porch in its favorite sunny spot that it loved to sunbathe in. And the owners, you know, I asked them, where, where, what's your cat's favorite place? And um, and that was satisfying for them and satisfying for me. And and I know that for years I, I tried my best to make the experience the least painful it could be for both the pet and the owner. But I now have tools that I didn't have before. And I think that's really been more something that um, veterinarians have focused on in the last, I'm going to say as little as the last five years, maybe. So You know, it's, it's interesting you said that because when I was, um, my vet has been kind. Um, she's been my vet for 20 years. Um, and she always came over to put my pets to sleep in their favorite spot in the house. Um, and when Daisy, the dog with the osteosarcoma, broke her leg and she was on fentanyl patches and I had her on a little dolly because, you know, we were going to put her to sleep, but I wanted her to be comfortable. She was on puppy cups. Um, she and I were sitting having a pot of tea and I felt the fentanyl was working pretty well. And it was clearly because Daisy got up from the dolly, walked over to the sunny spot um, where she always laid laid down and looked at us as much as to say, could you two get on with this? You know, the fentanyl's wearing off and I need to like, you know, book it, please. And my vet, Ren Williman said, I think she's letting us know she's ready. <laughs> you know, enough of this crying and everything else. You know, she said, I think she's letting us know she's ready. And um, she was gone quickly, but you're absolutely right. I think that um, the practice you're in that helps people with felines, um, cross over the bridge more comfortably, both for the family and for the pet, is wonderful. What you're teaching veterinarians now at UPenn, um, both in business and in end of life, is so critical and so needed and such a nice shift from um, who I love, Jim Wilson, who's perfect and would never say a bad word about him. Um, and he is coming over to the, um, the light side uh, where you get presence. It, he's not that kind of guy. He's he's really uh, just the smartest man I think I've ever met. Um, but he does every once in a while say, you know, Deborah, you've got a point. And I, I sort of <laughs> if you took yoga in your class. You would be Jim. You're in my yoga class. Just, just because it's so out of character for him. Diane, I mean, I am so thrilled to have you here. I would love to catch up with you in a few weeks or months so that we can talk again about this, because I think for people who pets matter to, this kind of conversation is so important. Well, again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, this is Deborah Hamilton, Why Do Pets Matter? Talking to Dr. Diane Eigner, who is the adjunct um, assistant professor of business and practice management, as well as end of life at PenVet, as well as the um, owner and manager of uh, Feline End of Life. Is yeah. that what it's called in the Jersey oh, okay. It's called the Cat Whisperer. The Cat Whisperer. I love that. So they can find you, the Cat Whisperer. Um, and it's on the Jersey Shore. Diane, thank you so much. Oh, stay you, well, stay healthy. Yeah, and we'll, we'll see you again. Okay. You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea or guest? or topic that you'd like me to cover, write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com.
gmail.com or email me at why do pets matter podcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.